You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. To rap fans here in the Vallejo area, he's known as Mac Ray. So a while ago, probably seven or eight years, I bought a t-shirt that says Thiz on it. Uh, It actually has a picture of like a candy heart and the word Thiz is printed on the heart. And uh, the word Thiz is strongly associated with Mac Dre. Uh, His record label was called Thiz Entertainment. One of his most famous songs is called Thizzle Dance. Anyway, literally every single time I wear the shirt, at least once, some stranger will come up to me and say something about Mac Dre, like, you know, how much they loved his music, or like one time in the mission, I just caught enough Bart, and uh, I come up on the 16th Street uh, Plaza, and this like really clean cut looking guy, he ran across the plaza to give me a high five, and right after I slapped his hand, he screamed, Scissor die! And then just kind of like took off. So, uh, Yeah, all this is just to say that the Bay, the Bay Area, will always have love for Mac Dre, a.k.a. Thizzle Washington, and this episode that you're about to hear is, um, it's about a very tragic topic, his death, his, his murder, but the hyphy movement that he helped create, it's still going strong. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. Stay tuned. Hi, everybody. This is Liam O'Donoghue, and I'm here today on East Bay Yesterday to talk with the journalist Donald Morrison. Uh, Donald wrote the article, Who Killed Mac Dre, for a website called Passion of the Weiss. And uh, Donald, before we get into your investigation, can you just give me a little bit of background on who you are and your journalism credentials? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for, for having me on this week. Um, my name is Donald Morrison. I'm an investigative journalist from Portland, Oregon. I'm currently based in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, the, uh, the blog Passion Weiss is an independent hip-hop blog ran by um, writer Jeff Weiss. Um, it's been around for, I believe, going on 10 years um, and produces a lot of really good content. All right. So, Mac Dre. There are other rappers in the Bay Area, like MC Hammer and Too Short and E-40, who have transcended the Bay and really become nationally or internationally famous and sold more records. But Mac Dre is probably the most beloved regional uh, Bay Area rapper of all time. Like, if anyone has ever been to a block party in Oakland or Vallejo, you've definitely heard Mac Dre. And not only have you heard Mac Dre, but, like, you've seen the reaction. As soon as the first couple beats of a Mac Dre song come on, people who are standing on the sidelines will, like, run into the street, start dancing, putting on the thiz face, you name it. Everyone knows the words. And the crazy thing is, we're talking now in the year 2021 mac dre died in 2004 and his popularity has 
transcended the generations. He's still everywhere. I think his popularity has maybe only grown in, in the years since his death. And of course, he is synonymous with hyphy, the hyphy movement. But how would you describe Mac Dre to someone who, who doesn't know the legend? Who Who is he to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I just turned 30, and by the time I had heard of Mac Dre, he had already, he had already passed away. So it was probably like 2007 or, or eight for me. Um, I don't remember exactly how I became familiar with Bay Area music. It might have been um, an artist named Andre Nicotina. My, my first concert was a Mob Figa's The Jacka and Andre Nicotina show. And, you know, Mac Dre was, was like a rock star to my friends and I. He's a, a very huge um, cult phenomenon, but it didn't seem like a cult phenomenon to me at the time in high school. I, I really thought everybody in the world knew who Mac Dre was and, and loved and adored him as my friends and I did. Um, but yeah, it was kind of later that I realized that he was kind of like a, a regional act, like people on the East Coast might not have heard of him unless they were huge hip hop heads. But yeah, that's what Mac Dre was to me. I mean, I think he's only gotten bigger since his death. And you had uh, artists like Drake bringing out his mom, Mac Wanda, on stage during one of his shows in Oakland. Um, and, and since then, his influence has only grown. It's amazing. I feel like with music, uh, a lot of the time it's so generational, like a rapper or a rock star who's popular in one decade. 10 years later, 20 years later, it might be totally forgotten. But that's certainly not the case with Mac Dre. And um, we're here today to talk about his unfortunate murder, uh, which happened uh, more than 15 years ago, back in 2004 in Kansas City. And before we get into the, the details of that event, which is still officially unsolved, uh, I want to talk about um, you know, there have been conspiracies, uh, rumors floating around this case pretty much since day one. So I, I want to establish that you did your homework, essentially. What kind of documents did you get your hands on? Who did you talk to? Why should people take your article seriously? Yeah, that's a good question. I So I originally had you know, like, like many people during the pandemic, I was left with a lot of time on my hands. I actually graduated from the University of Oregon last year, and I was, I was waiting to do a, an internship down here in LA. And I pitched a story to Jeff Weiss for his blog that was just basically it was I wanted to revisit Mac Dre's legacy and what he meant to, to Portland, Oregon. And, and through that lens, kind of see if I can dig something up about his death. But I wasn't expecting it, and that wasn't even really the motive to begin with. Um, but one of the first things I did was I emailed the, the Kansas City Police Department and filed an, an official request. And it was very broad request. It was for every document related to the murder of, of Andre Hicks. And I truly wasn't expecting much because, because I had just graduated from school it seemed hard to believe that I would be the first journalist to, to try to do this. But, but when they came back to me, they said they were $114 at the time. I didn't even have that much money to spend on it. And I wasn't sure if, if the documents would even pan out because I, I figured it was an open case and maybe they would, you know, be, be blacking out any, you know, redacting any important information. 
So I, I thought maybe that it would be a scam, the $114. Um, but I, I convinced a friend to help me to, to pay for half the documents. And, and when I got them, you know, it was, yeah, I can still remember the moment I got them because it was 1,200 pages sent in 10 files and I was just watching them roll in. And that weekend, I, I like hardly ate. I read every single page. I mean, at the first when I read it, I didn't write any notes down. I was just reading it totally captivated because I realized, you know, that there was a lot of transcripts basically from every interview that the detectives did. And there was a, there was a definite story there. And I started going on Facebook and, and reaching out to people. And one of the first people I got a hold of was Vino Davila. And that was, he was uh, arrested in Kansas City in 2000. Uh, and prosecutors charged him with bringing in 330 pounds of cocaine into Kansas City between 2000 and, and 2006, basically. So he was like the, the cocaine kingpin of, of that area. And I was, he was all over the documents. His, his mom, I found her on Facebook. Oh, I'm sorry. It was his sister who I found on Facebook. Um, and she put me in touch with him. He's still in prison in, in Texas. And um, once I connected with him, the, the story kind of unraveled, began unraveling a little bit more. And it took, I mean, close to, to 10 months. I interviewed, I think, about two dozen people. Um, and, and that's like law enforcement, friends, anyone who had a direct connection to the case? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, but it wasn't law enforcement because the law enforcement shut me out. After they gave me the documents, um, they refused to comment on them. Okay. Um, and that's true t- till this day. I was able to get the detective on the phone. I called a number that I had found in the documents and he, you know, he talked to me for a second and that that's in the doc or that's in the story um, that was published my brief interview with him. But, but that was really it. It was mostly people from Kansas city and then a couple people um, from the Bay. Okay. Let's get into it. Mac Trey, who's, Uh, birth name was Andre Hicks. He was murdered in Kansas City on Halloween weekend 2004. Let's start at the beginning. What was he doing in Kansas City? So that weekend, Mac Dre was going to perform one show, ended up being two shows. But I think at the time, he was under the assumption that he'd be going there to perform a show on October 29th at the National Guard Armory, which is a, a venue in Kansas that doesn't exist anymore. And, and yeah, he, he got there on October 27th, which was a Wednesday, um, to perform on Friday. And he was picked up by Savino Davila, who was also going to be providing the transportation for him and his crew. Mark Dre was with three friends, um, and Savino had an extra white van. Um, that was the person you just mentioned who's currently incarcerated for cocaine trafficking? Yes, he's incarcerated in, in Texas at the Segaville uh, Penitentiary. And, and he, prosecutor said he was like the cocaine kingpin okay. of Kansas City between 2000 and 2006, right. um, which he denies. Um, he says that they kind of inflated those charges. But yeah, he was going to, his cousin, Harold Piercy, was going to be driving this white van that Savino was loaning out to Mac Dre and his crew to be transportation for the weekend. He had this extra car and he was like, Harold is 
you know, he's homies with the Bay Area rappers. He likes hanging out with them. Um, he can drive you guys around while you're in Kansas City. Tell me about these shows that Matt Dre was booked for. Specifically, like, who was the promoter? Because this turns out to be a key character in the investigation, the, uh, the, the person who was actually organizing these performances. Yeah, this, this does become a very key component of the investigation. Um, so basically, the story really starts when this guy, Damon Whitmell, who is a Kansas City native, he, Kansas City, Missouri, that is, not the Kansas side. Um, he decides, this is all in the documents as well. Um, anything that I'm saying comes from interviews that he's done with police. Um, but So according to his interview with K- KCPD, um, he wanted to throw a rap concert for his first time. Um, he got the idea after seeing a billboard with a Kansas City rapper named 40 Cal on it. Uh, it was a promotion for one of his shows. And so he actually knew 40 Cal somehow reached out to him and said, I'd like to throw a, a rap show. Um, and I'm thinking about bringing out some artists from the Bay Area. Can you connect me with them? And that's when 40 Cal reaches out to PSD the driver, who is a, a, a rapper connected to Fizz Entertainment, which is Mac Dre's record label. And then PSD, the driver, according to the documents, connects him with Mac Dre or, you know, Mac Dre's manager at the time. And that's how Damon Whitmell and the Bay Area artists get connected. And I think over the next, like, two or three weeks, they they figure out a deal. Uh, they're going to pay Mac Dre uh, $12,500 uh, with the first 6000 to be paid up front right away and the rest to be paid after um, the shows are successful um, when, when in Kansas City. According to the documents, Damon Whitmell does get Mac Dre his initial $6,000, the down payment on the shows, um, and, and everything is going well. Um, Mac Dre shows up on the 27th, picked up by Savino Davila, and then on the 29th, which is the day of the show, Damon Whitmell has a couple... Um, promotional events for the show planned. One of them is to go on to a radio show and Mac Dre will do kind of an appearance there, um, shout out the show and tell people what time to get there, whatnot. Pretty standard. Um, and then another another one was a signing at a record store called Much Music and More. Um, and the, the police did interview that guy. Um, I think his name was Byron. Byron Robinson, who's the owner of that store, and he said that when, you know, Mac Dre got there, he showed up late with 30 people, and it was very disorganized. Um, he, he left early. Then on top of that, Mac Dre also reportedly didn't show up to the radio interview to, to promote the show. So sounds like there wasn't too big of an incentive to go there. Like this, this Damon Whitmore guy, he was a first time promoter. Maybe things weren't, maybe he didn't tell them about it before they got there. And so they didn't feel like it was something that they contractually had to do, but for whatever reasons it, it didn't happen. And that night at the show at the Kansas city armory also on the bill, uh, was Bay area rappers, yuck mouth and keek to sneak keek to sneak is, um, rumored to be the person who actually invented the term hyphy. He was mm-hmm. the one who came up with the word itself. And so 
but yeah um you so you've got some big bay area talent on the bill uh, at the same time the promoter damon whitmill uh, has never done anything like this before seems like kind of a complicated situation uh, that he maybe didn't totally have under control. So uh, talk more about that night. H- how did the performances go? Was it sold out? Tell me a little bit more about that that evening. There were a couple Kansas City acts opening up for, for the Bay Area rappers. Um, but from what I can tell you, the Yuck Mouth and Kick to Sneak performances went went just fine. Mac Dre was the, the last person to go on stage. And when he got on stage, at some point after maybe one or two songs, he told the crowd to, to get on stage is what is what a bunch of people report. And uh, apparently it was a fire hazard. And very quickly, he was told to, to get the people off the stage. Um, the DJ, uh, DJ Fresh, who I interviewed for the, the, the article, he said that he told Mac Dre to, to get everyone off the stage to kind of tell people to go back into the crowd. And he said, um, that's not my job, according to the documents, um, which any Mac Dre fan will know is also a famous Mac Dre song, Not My Job, which is <laughs> an interesting, interesting little tidbit in the story. <laughs> it's very believable that he could have said that. I can bust you a rap, but anything else, it's not my job. Absolutely. And uh, before you go any further and talk about kind of what happened after, I just want to back up and say, like, for anyone who's ever seen videos of Mac Dre performing live, there were always people on stage with him. Uh, He would bring people up who knew all the words. He clearly vibed off the energy. He'd be dancing. It was like a party on stage. And I think that's one of the reasons why even just watching his videos now, um, it's like the performances were so infectious and, and jubilant because it's not just like one guy on stage performing for a crowd of adoring fans. He's creating this atmosphere where where everyone's part of the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mac Dre was a man of the people. Um, he, he always would have people on stage when he was performing. And, and apparently this time it created a fire hazard. Um, and then the show was, was ordered to be shut down. Like the, the security came through and, and the show was shut down. And that was like two so, songs in, right? Or two or three songs in? And that was only, yeah, that was only two or three songs in. And, and so Mac Dre and, and the rest of his crew presumably left after that. And Damon Whitmill tells the police at first he lost a lot of money on the show. And you can imagine he was probably upset um, when the show got shut down and there were reports that people were asking for their money back. Um, DJ Fresh told me that as well, that he, he remembers some people were upset. And yeah, so Damon Whitmill told, told the police in his first interview, the first time they asked that he lost money on the show. And the second time they asked, he said that he broke even. And then by the end of the interview, at the very end, he said he actually did pretty well and, and ended up making like 6000 on the show. It's, it's hard to tell what, what the actual truth is. Damon Whitmill is one of the people that I haven't been able to talk to or track down. Um, but it's safe to say that as the promoter, you can't be super happy when something like that happens to at your first show. Yeah. So um, there's a couple other things that happened that weekend in the, in the lead up to the murder. Can you take me through the next like 24 hours or so? 
uh, after that show. What are the key milestones that people need to be aware of? Yeah, so after that show, Zuckmouth <clears throat> and Keek the Sneak, they, they take off back to California without the, the full amount of money they're supposed to be paid. Um, there is a, a DJ Vlad interview between Yuckmouth and Keek the Sneak. Those are both on YouTube, and they both say that they decided to head back to the Bay Area without Mac Dre. Um, Mac Dre decided to stick around and actually booked another show for Halloween night the that that sunday so the last show was on a friday it's next sunday that's the was at the atlantic star um and the, the idea is that max ray can help damon whitmill the promoter make back some of the money that he might have lost on the the previous friday the last show at the armory um other reasons that max ray might have stayed in town um it's it's rumored that he had some girlfriends there, um, some girls that, that he was friendly with and that he kicked it with. He also was friends with Savino Davila and was being driven around by Harold Piercy, who was a friend. So it sounds like he might have had more connections to Kansas City, maybe than um, Yuckmouth or Keep the Sneak did. So I think that those could have been other reasons that he stuck around. And then on that Sunday at the Atlantic Star, it's kind of hard to tell based on the documents, but I think Mac Dre was under the assumption that it was just going to be a walkthrough. He would go to this club and kind of, you know, have a VIP booth where he would pop bottles and, and you know, bring people into the club, but he wasn't going to actually perform. Um, those are like two different things. Um, I think there was maybe a dispute about this and Damon Whitmill thought he was going to perform, but when Mac Dre got there, he stayed for about 30 minutes, ordered some bottles, and then and then he left right away without performing. And so what's tough about this story is nobody really has a good incentive to tell the truth. So even the people in the documents that, that are saying what happened, you have to take everything for a grain of salt. Like there's part of me that, you know, understands we'll never really know the truth about what happened that night or the Friday night. Um, all we really have is all of these different, you know, accounts of what happened from people with very different motives for, for wanting to tell what really happened. So I think that's something to, to keep in mind. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so what can you tell us about the next few hours that night? Uh, some things are impossible to know for reasons that will be clear very shortly, but there are certain facts that emerge in the case that you detail in your article. So what parts of the story seem most clear or provable? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break down the, the timeline, you know, for, for things that are for certain that we know. Um, we know that after that show, you know, or that walkthrough at the Atlantic Star on Halloween night, um, Mac Dre left the club in a limousine that Damon Whitmill, the promoter, had rented um, for him. Uh, the limousine took him and some of his crew that was following behind him in the white van that Savino had led, had lended his crew, followed him to uh, an IHOP where it ended up being closed and they ended up not going there. The limo left at some point. Um, it got, you know, it got called off by Damon Whitmill, the promoter, 
and it left. So the white van was, Mac Dre went to the white van after he was in, um, after being at IHOP. On the way, okay, how should I explain this? So from IHOP, he left in the white van with Harold Piercy, Savino's right-hand man driving. It was just them two. Mac Dre was sleeping in the back at the time, and he was heading to his hotel at the Sheridan in Kansas City. On the freeway, it was Highway 71, somewhere between 2.30 and 3, um, a black Infiniti G35 pulled up alongside the van and with an automatic rifle and I think a handgun, two guns were used. They pulled up alongside the van on the freeway and fired some 30 bullets into the, the driver's side of the vehicle. Harold Piercy swerved to try to get away from the car and ended up going over the, the medium. You can imagine like two freeways are separated by like a divider. He, he goes over it, crosses into the, the, the other lanes and then ends up in a ditch where the car crashes and throws Mac Dre's body into, into the muddy ditch. Uh, Mac Dre was hit one time. He was hit by bullet fragments too, but he was hit one time fatally in the, in the back of the neck. And that's, that's what killed him. Um, after the van crashed, Harold Piercy got out and ran. Um, he told police in his first interview that when he got out of the car, there, were, there was another car chasing him. He saw some headlights heading towards him. He booked it the opposite direction and eventually ended up back at the Sheraton. I'm sorry, it wasn't the Sheraton. He ended up back at the motel that Mac Dre's friends were staying at. And he alerted Mac Dre's friends, told the front desk person to call the police. The front desk person um, remembers seeing Harold Piercy covered in mud, um, frantic when he came in. And then at that point, Mac Dre's friends and Harold Piercy head back to the scene of the crime, and, and the police show up shortly thereafter. Uh, I believe they were, police might have been there right when they got there. They showed up right around the same time. And yeah, they, they cover Mac Dre's body up and um, start, start doing some questioning. And um, it was the police detective Everett Babcock who... If, if anyone's a fan of like true crime shows like the first 48 or, or American gangster, that the documentary show that um, documents famous kingpins in American history. Um, he's been a featured on there. It's kind of like a celebrity detective. And he, he was one of the first detectives to show up that day. All right. Mac Dre has been killed the investigation starts. This was 2004, and now it's about 17 years later, and in the years since Mac Dre's murder, there have been a lot of stories, um, a lot of theories about what happened, and we'll get to the case that you sort of uh, build in your article uh, for who you uh, kind of think are some of the most likely suspects, but there's another chapter of this saga that's worth discussing because there's a story that uh, a lot of people in the Bay Area, or at least Mac Dre fans, are probably familiar with, um, and that is a theory that there was a Kansas, Kansas City rapper named Fat Tone involved. So 
Let's talk about Fat Tone. Can you explain who he was and how he gets wrapped up in all this? Yeah, so Fat Tone is a Kansas City rapper who was very, very young at the time. I think he was only, he was only 23. Um, he, was, he was affiliated with the 51st Street Crips in Kansas City, and he was known for being, for being violent and for being uh, a gang member, basically. Uh, he didn't shy away from those kind of rumors. It, it, it bolstered his, his rap career. He, he was a gangster rapper through and through, and, and these kind of events, um, were, were good for his career. Uh, he, before the Mac Dre murder, he had, had been arrested and accused of the shooting of a 17-year-old pregnant woman. Um, he was eventually released after about nine months in county jail because all the witnesses uh, recanted their statements. Um, he pulled a real ghetto boys move by having one of his album covers be him in the hospital after getting shot. Um, famously, Bushwick Bill did that from the Ghetto Boys mm-hmm. in like 1993, I believe. So, so yeah, he had done a lot to like bolster this image. And that that weekend, um, he was allegedly there on Friday at Mac Dre's show on the 29th. And so it had kind of been rumored that he had tried to get on the stage, and Mac Dre told him not to, and and this beef kind of began to unfold between them that culminated in. Fat Tone shooting Mac Dre that night and killing him. And based on the documents, like, that's what a lot of people thought. There was dozens and dozens of tips recorded um, for people saying that they heard it was Fat Tone, they saw Fat Tone doing it. It, it was a big deal. I mean, and to this day, until my story came out, that's what a lot of people in the Bay Area and Kansas City believed. Um, and so, but, but the thing is, it wasn't Fat Town, um, and, and the detectives knew that pretty quickly afterwards. Um, and, and Fat Town had even released a song that, you know, said that he had love for Mac Dre and didn't do it. But, but a rumor persisted that he released a song saying that he killed the Fizzle Man. Um, and that song, I can't find it. Nobody can really find it. I don't think it exists. Um, and, and Fat Town had actually been featured on another Mac Dre song um, earlier. Right. And and so according to your research, um, something that you discovered uh, was that one of the people who might have been spreading this Fat Tone rumor was uh, the promoter, Damon Whitmill. And we'll get back to him in a minute. But first, um, can you talk about what happened to Fat Tone not that long after... Mac Dre's murder. Uh, what do you know about that that case? Yeah, so about six months after Mac Dre's murder in 2004, Fat Tone is is lured to Las Vegas under the guise of performing for Snoop Dogg, and then the person who lured them there is a guy named Mac Minister, who is a California rapper. Apparently, he was close with Mac Dre because once Fat Tone showed up in Vegas. He was found murdered in a cul-de-sac, like, you know, 10 miles from the strip. Him and his friend um, had both been shot with automatic rifles. Um, Fat Tone's body was found a little bit away from the car, while his friend's body was found in the car. So 
later Mac Minister and his friend are arrested. The the other friend of Mac Minister, he tells police that Fat Tone and his friend were murdered um, in retaliation for, for Mac Dre's killing. Um, later, Mac Minister is arrested. At first, he goes on the run for a while. Uh, and while he's on the run, he records the intro to the game's sophomore album, um, Doctor's Advocate, uh, which is kind of just a, an interesting moment in, in hip-hop history. And, and also while he's on the run, um, another another person is murdered. Um, that's Lee Danae uh, Lawson. She is... She is a... Um, oh, sorry, that's Lee Danae Lawson. And she was a, a native of Utah. And she somehow got in with Mac Minister and uh, she ends up with a bullet in her head and her car caught on fire. Um, Mac Minister is basically, basically believed to be the one who had done that kind of tying up loose ends in, in the Mac Dre and the fat town investigations. Um, but that murder is still un, unsolved technically. And, and Mac, Mac Minister is in jail. And he maintains his innocence. Um, but, but yeah, fat tone, definitely a, a victim of, clout facing in, in a lot of ways like he he didn't deny the rumors that he was the the killer of mac dre quite fervently enough um and and he ended up paying for it in the article uh who killed mac dre you make it pretty clear that fat tone was probably not responsible for mac dre's murder Instead, the, um, the evidence that you pulled together suggests a different conclusion. So based on the documents that you've seen and the interviews you've done, what, what do you think happened on that, on that tragic night in 2004? And before you respond, I just want to remind listeners that uh, nobody has ever been charged in connection with this case. So this is all alleged, uh, not proven in court. Okay. Yeah, so Donald Morrison, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I can state pretty definitively that I, I don't think Fat Tone was involved. And um, people close to Mac Dre have done interviews like, like Jay Diggs saying that Fat Tone was not the one that did it. Um, it's kind of common knowledge for anyone who's really looked deeply into the case. They, they kind of know Fat Tone didn't do it. And there has been rumors that the promoter did it. Like, you can go online and find people talking about a promoter, but his name was never named. Um, not until I got the documents and, and published the story. And so that was the, you know, the aforementioned Damon Whitmill. Um, and, and the story is Damon Whitmill was upset about the two failed events um, that he tried to plan around Mac Dre. He lost a lot of money. Uh, so he put a, a hit out on Mac Dre and he recruited two Two or three shooters, two shooters that I that you know that I believe for sure based on the documents and the interviews, and their names are Calvert Antwine, who went by Papoose, uh, and then also Taryn T Baby Smith, uh, and they, you know, they were in their twenties at the time. Yeah, I, I can go into the the evidence that I have on why that I think it's them. If, if that would help. Well, 
uh, we're not going to be able to get like as nitty gritty into all the details that you cover in the article. Um, it's just a massive article. It's such a long piece. Uh, but there are clues linking these individuals uh, to the car that was allegedly used in the murder, uh, to the alleged murder weapons, things like that. So can you try to give us an overview of, of some of those major points? Yeah, so one of the one of the first tips that um, the detectives got was about the where, whereabouts of the black infinity that had been found the next day with bullet holes completely totaled, um, mud on the side, on one side, and then on the other side, you could see um, white paint that had been, you know, transferred onto it, presumably when it was trying to ram the, the white van off the road. Yeah. So wait, hold on. So just backing up a quick second, I want to clarify something for the for the listeners. Uh, it was uh, very clear um, that the bullet holes in the car, in the Infinity, were bullet holes from somebody shooting inside the car, like someone inside the car shooting out and like missing the window that they were trying to shoot out of. Uh, it wasn't somebody in the van that, that Mac Dre was in returning fire, correct? Yeah, exactly. They could see from the way that the, like, the metal in the door curled outwards that someone had been shooting from inside the car out towards um, the van, um, which is definitely like you can see the pictures in the article. It's really kind of astounding to think that that could happen. And, you know, over, over 30 bullets were shot in the middle of the night. Um, but, yeah, when police found the Infinity, there was a tip that came in that said uh, two people were seen leaving, you know, parking the car at like 5.30 at night and then and then leaving. Um, and then the next thing you know, police are getting all sorts of tips about the promoter, about Fat Tone. And, uh, you know, over the next three years, the case kind of goes, goes cold in a way, but the detectives are still interviewing all these people. And there's all of these jailhouse witnesses who had been locked up with Calvert Antoine and uh, Taryn Smith, and they had been talking to them, telling them they had been, you know, paid to do the killing, and and that Damon Whitmell had paid them to do it, and and these are all these are all um, interviews documented by the police, and so that that was the first time that I was ever hearing these names, and I was able to compile all of the the tips together. And it kind of created a, a narrative that, you know, maybe not every part of every tip was the truth, but when you added them all up together, it seemed to me that there was like a lot of, a lot of legitimacy to these two names. Um, and then one real, like one real aha moment that I had where like the, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Uh, I had looked up Taryn Smith's name in the Missouri court records database. And I found another case four months after Mac Dre's murder where him and Calvert Antoine together were arrested with um, automatic rifles and drugs um, right near where Mac Dre was murdered. And so that's when there was just too many coincidences for me. You know, I, I thought that this might be them, but as far as being able to connect them with the promoter, Damon Whitmill, there's no real evidence because Karen T. Baby Smith and Calvert Antoine were both murdered um, in the years after Mac Dre's death. 
Um, presumably, from for unrelated reasons, we don't really know. Both of their murders are unsolved. But yeah, so I, obviously I wasn't able to talk to them. And and then Damon Whitmill, the promoter, um, I have not been able to find any record of him or his current number. I was able to talk to a lawyer of his who told me that he passed on some information and some questions, but um, I was I was never able to to hear back. Right. And so uh, there are still a lot of unknowns surrounding this case. But one thing that's indisputable, essentially, based on the multiple interviews that he gave to law enforcement, is that the promoter, Damon Whitmill, his story about that weekend, uh, Halloween weekend 2004, has never been consistent. Uh, In the documents, it shows how he changed his story uh, at least three different times about, for example, whether or not he lost money on the Mac Dre show. Yeah, exactly. And and if you look as far as motive goes, Damon Whitmill has, I mean, he has the most motive. He had the only like monetary incentive to make sure that Mac Dre, you know, performed his shows on time and and that everything went off without a hitch. Um, He was the person who... May, might have lost money up out of the whole weekend. Um, and then one other component that's there is Savino Davila. Hey, everybody. Liam here. Uh, I'm just jumping in because at this point in the conversation, uh, Donald and I started going down some rabbit holes and... You know, I think we've already covered the major points of his article. So I'm just going to jump ahead in a second here to the to the conclusion of the story. But first, I just want to say, even though this murder happened about 17 years ago, I know it's still raw for a lot of people. You, you never really get over losing a friend or, or a loved one. So even though Mac Dre has millions of fans out there, um, including myself, of course, this episode is dedicated to the, the people who knew him personally, especially his mom, Mac Wanda. I'm so sorry for your loss. And I hope you can just take some small amount of comfort in knowing that Mac Dre's music, his, his memory, still brings so much joy and happiness to so many people. Okay, with that being said, here's the end of the interview. Well, Donald Morrison, thank you so much for uh, all the work that you put into your article, Who Killed Mac Dre. It's a, it's a gripping read. And um, before we go, are there any final words that you want to share about Mac Dre, uh, his music, his legacy, his impact on the Bay? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, if, you, if you've heard of Mac Dre, then... You know him, you love him, and you're a fan. That's kind of been my experience. Is like if you've come into contact with his music, it, his, he's someone that, that their art stays with you. Um, and if you haven't, it's never too late of a time to to get into his music. And it's really just a never-ending vault of some of the best California hip-hop music that the world has ever seen. Um, and I hope this article has, has brought... Um, some clarity 
and to the fans who have loved him, have always wondered uh, what happened in 2004. And may he thiz in peace. One thing we don't have to question is the longevity of his uh, influence. I have no doubt that Thizzle Dance and Feeling Myself uh, and Get Stupid, so many other Mac Dre classics, will continue to be played uh, very often and at very loud volumes throughout the Yay area and uh, hopefully the rest of the world too uh, for many, many years to come. Don Morrison, thanks again for... Uh, joining me for this interview uh, on East Bay yesterday. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for, for all the work you've done um, and, and highlighting the, the history of the East Bay and, and getting these stories told. It, it means a lot. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Again, I'll link to uh, Donald's article that's up at Passionwise uh, from my site, eastbayyesterday.com, if you want to read the whole investigation. And, um, you know, I've actually been going through a pretty rough time lately. I've uh, been dealing with a family medical crisis, and uh, I just want to say thanks to everyone who's been reaching out with kind words uh, during this very difficult moment. I... <laughs> I really appreciate it, and I consider myself incredibly lucky to have such amazing friends and fans. Uh, as always, this episode would not have been possible without my Patreon supporters. Thank you so much to everyone who's donating to keep the show alive. Uh, if anyone else out there wants to support my ability to keep making new shows, go to eastbayyesterday.com and uh, hit the donate link at the top of the page. Another way to support the show is by coming on my historical boat tours of the bay. Uh, they always sell out really fast, so the best way to find out when those tickets go on sale is to sign up for my newsletter. You can find that link at the website, too. And uh, even if you can't afford to support, uh, but you still want to show some love, you can always just spread the word about East Bay Yesterday. Uh, it's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Please tag me if you give a shout out. And uh, the music for this episode came from Justin Lee and Mac Dre. The theme song came from Anatech. And that's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.